Going back to a passage that we noticed last week also in the book of Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. The Apostle Paul said, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint or ordain elders in every city as I commanded you. In this passage, the Apostle Paul instructs Titus or tells Titus the reason for leaving him in Crete. Now, something about Crete you might remember. I think this is very important. Crete was no small place. In fact, it was the fifth largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. Scholars tell us that ancient Crete was about 186 miles long, and the width of it varied. In the narrowest part of Crete, it was seven miles, and in the widest part of Crete, it was 35 miles. There were over 100 cities in that place, and over a million people. And Paul tells Titus that he left them in Crete, he left him in Crete for the purpose of doing two things. Number one, to set in order the things that are lacking, and number two, to ordain elders in every city. Now, first of all, we need to understand and remember that ordaining elders in every city means ordaining elders in every church. Now, if in fact there was a hundred cities, then we might say that there was a hundred congregations in that particular place, perhaps. Every city where there was a church, they were to ordain elders. Now, elders were ordained in those places without miraculous help from God. I've heard people say, you know, we don't have a whole lot of elders today. We have a lot of congregations that don't have elders today. And the only way that they could have done it back in the old days or back in the days of the early New Testament church was with miraculous help. I don't believe that at all. I don't think there's anything that is described there about elders that was with miraculous help. I think that these men were spiritually minded men. Number two, they desired the office of an elder. And number three, they were fully qualified. Now understand, today we may not have elders in a lot of congregations, but really, what does it need? What do we need to have elders? We need spiritually minded men that desire the office and are fully qualified. Now, it is scriptural government for there to be elders and deacons in the Lord's church. That is scriptural. But it would be equally on the opposite side, unscriptural and wrong, to ordain men that were not qualified according to the word of God. Now, names for the office. We talked about this last time. I'll be very brief about this. Names for the office. There are three different names that describe the office of an elder. One is the English word elder, and elder simply means older and with experience. And what I have here on the screen, I have the word young with a line through it, because by definition alone, an elder is an older person. And by definition, it would automatically eliminate a young man. A young man cannot be an elder. An elder is one that is older and with experience. Secondly, there's another word that describes the office of an elder, and that is the word bishop. And bishop is an overseer, and bishop is used to describe the duty that the elder has to the congregation, and that is an overseer of the flock. Number three is the word pastor. 
sometimes taken out of context in the religious world where somebody gives the name pastor to an evangelist or a preacher. That is unscriptural. A pastor is an elder, and there were always a plurality of elders in congregations of the body of Christ. So a one-man pastor system that is found in the denominational world is unscriptural. An elder, though, is called a pastor, and a pastor is a shepherd and talks about the task to feed the flock. Now, here's the point. An elder is described as an elder because he's older and with experience. He's called a bishop to describe his duty to the congregation, and that is an overseer. He is called a pastor to describe his task to feed the flock as a shepherd. All right, now... Qualifications. What did we notice last week? Number one, a man must desire the office. That's first and foremost. Now, you remember what we said. A man that's going to desire the office. There's two different words in that passage for desire. It says if a bishop desires, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. Those two English word desires are different. The first one is to desire the office. The second one is to earnestly or eagerly desire the work. So if a man is going to be an elder, he's got to desire the office, but even more so, he has to desire the work. You know what this man described to me is? This man right here is described as a man that understands that influence is more important than authority. I'm going to say that again. Influence is more important than authority. Leadership is more important. And a man that wants the office, he needs to also desire even greater the work. That's the first requirement. The second requirement, he must be blameless. Now remember, that does not mean sinless. Blameless does not mean sinless. Blameless means that there are no sustainable charges against that man. That's a man that's blameless. Okay. What about the family requirements? The first one is he must be the husband of one wife. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul says a bishop must be blameless. He must be the husband of one wife. And by the way, these are not suggestions. If a man is going to be an elder which is the highest position in the Lord's church, and let me just dare say, the highest position in the world, because nothing is greater than the church. If a man is going to be that, he must be blameless, and he must be the husband of one wife. Let's go further. Paul's writing to Titus. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 6, if a man is blameless and... If he is the husband of one wife. So what do we have? We have the Titus. He's giving a condition. And he's saying to Titus, if you find somebody that is blameless, and if you find somebody that's the husband of one wife, they would fit into the category with all the other requirements of someone that was a candidate to be an elder. Over here, Paul says, point blank, he must be blameless. He must be the husband of one wife. The question is, what does that mean? Well, first of all, he's got to be married. He has to be a married man. He can't be single. 
He has to be a one-woman man. In fact, scholars tell us that's exactly what that means. It means a one-woman man. A one-woman man. One scholar said he is to be as committed to his bride as Jesus Christ is to his bride. In other words, faithful and true. Okay, who would be eliminated automatically? What is the obvious people eliminated for having the husband of one wife? Obviously a polygamist. And there's no problem with polygamy in our country, really, except in some various cults somewhere. But really, we don't have, as a custom, the... the the uh, deal of polygamy because it's illegal. So it would, it would eliminate a polygamist. But it would also eliminate a man that was unscripturally divorced, not following the pattern of Matthew 19, unscripturally divorced and unscripturally remarried. Now the Bible of Matthew chapter 19 gives an exception. There's one exception and only one regarding marriage and divorce and remarriage, and that is adultery. And if somebody commits adultery, they are the guilty party. The innocent party can put that guilty party away, and that person is free to remarry. That's the exception. There's only one exception. Now, somebody that was unscripturally divorced and unscripturally remarried is somebody that's not the husband of one wife. It would eliminate that guy, too. All right. What about this? What if a man is married to a woman and she dies and he marries another in the Lord? 1 Corinthians 7. And a couple years later, the congregation where he is wants to install him as an elder. Is he the husband of one wife? Yes. Romans chapter 7 says that a man or a woman is bound to the marriage relationship as long as the spouse is alive. But when that spouse is now dead, that marriage union is separated and that person is no longer married. If he marries in the Lord, he is the husband of one wife all over again. See the point? He's the husband of one wife. Now, I think we get that. We get that. But the real question is this. And I want you to know that I have really wrestled with this. I have studied with this by the hour. I have wrestled with this. What if a man is already an elder and his wife dies? He's already an elder. He fit all the qualifications to be an elder. And then his wife dies. Should he resign his position as an elder? Now, my first reaction was, well, no. He didn't do anything wrong. But then I studied it further. And I have some problems with that. And by the way, I have known of cases where a man was married. He was an elder. She died. And he immediately stepped down and resigned. I've also known of cases where a man was married, he was an elder, and his wife dies, and he just ignored about husband of one wife and just kept right on going through. I know that those cases too. The question is this. Does a man have to step down if he is an elder and his wife dies? Now, here's my problem with My first thing was, no, he doesn't. But watch this. 
Paul talks about what an elder must be and not what an elder has been. That's the problem I got. It doesn't say what an elder has been at one time. It says an elder must be. Now, if a man cannot have more than one, then he can't have less than one. J.W. McGarvey says this, look at this. That he should be the husband of one wife forbids having less than one as clearly as it forbids having more than one. Moreover, the context confirms the conclusion. For the apostle proceeds in both epistles to state that the overseer must govern his household and especially his children, which statements imply that he is to be a family man or a man of family. Now, I realize that sometimes these questions might be, uh, might be hard to answer with certainty. I get that. But remember this. We must be very consistent in, in interpreting these qualifications. We can't say that some qualifications are literal and others are, well, up to interpretation or we can look at those things with looseness. We need to be very careful because if we look at the, at the requirement of a man being the husband of one wife, not literally, then we would not have to attach a literal interpretation to the next thing. Or the one after that. Or the one after that. What's the next one? He's got to have faithful children. He's got to have faithful children. Now I'm going to tell you. If we take a loose interpretation of husband of one wife. Then we can also take a loose interpretation of faithful children. As the man said one time, if not, why not? Faithful children. Now, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 6. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, that's the New King James. The King James Version says, riot or unruly. Now, what does it mean to have faithful children? I'm going to simply just say it like this. And there's all manner of thoughts and theories of what faithful children is. I'll tell you what I believe faithful children is, and I'm going to do my very best to prove that. Faithful children means faithful Christians. Faithful children is faithful Christians. Now, I don't understand why it is that people sometimes misinterpret faithful children, and they say that faithful here does not mean what faithful means all throughout the Word of God. For example, when Paul is writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, listen to this. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Nobody has a problem with that. Nobody thinks that means faithful to their father. Everybody understands the things that I am telling you, Timothy, commit thou to what? Faithful men. Who are faithful men? They are faithful Christians. Nobody has a problem with that. Let me give you another passage. Colossians 1 and verse 2. 
to the saints, talking to Christians, and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Another passage, Ephesians 1 and verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, in these passages, no one would say that Paul means anything other than faithful Christians. But you know, you can read commentators, you can talk to people that have all manner of interpretations about this. And some people will say, no, they don't have to be Christians as long as they're faithful to their parent, faithful to their father. It's the same word. It's the same word. Let's look at some other translations of the exact same passage and find out what they say. How about the American Standard Version? The American Standard Version in the place of faithful children says this. Having children that believe. That's not a commentator. That's not a commentary. That's not a Bible scholar. That is, an, that is a translation of the Word of God. And by the way... Whenever the Bible talks about believing or believers, it is always talking about someone in connection with, some, with the idea of obeying the gospel. Somebody being a Christian. Believers are those that are Christians. Let's go further. The NIV says, whose children believe. The Amplified New Testament says, whose children are well-trained and believers. Weist expanded translation says this, having children who are believers. These are translations of the body of the Bible that tell us uh, that faithful children obviously is talking about faithful Christians. What about some Greek authorities on the subject? Mr. Thayer says this, this passage of faithful children is talking about one who has become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah and the author of salvation, a believer. Next, here's another one. Art Gingrich says, a believer in Christ, a Christian believer. Henry says, brought up in the true Christian faith. Robinson says, a believer, a Christian. One more. This is the Krosky's pulpit commentary. It says, believers adorning the doctrine of the gospel by purity and obedience. There must be evidence that they have been brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So, why do I believe that faithful children means faithful Christians? Well, simply by the definition of faithful, for one. Number two, by the translations we just noticed of the Bible. Number three, by noted Bible scholars. Number four, by commentators. And obviously, the context fits that it's talking about faithful Christians. Now, When a man's children are faithful Christians, there's a good reason for having this as a requirement. There's a good reason to believe that he has experience in training and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6 and verse 4. That he has experience in ruling or leading in such a way that inspires other people to obey and emulate. On the other hand, when a man's children are not faithful, there's lingering questions. There's lingering questions. Is he at fault? I'm going to tell you something, folks. I believe that the Bible is clear 
that if my children go make decisions and sin in their life, that I am not going to bear the, the penalty of their sin. We are, all, we are all given the freedom of choice. They're not going to be held accountable for my sin, and I'm not going to be held accountable for their sin. The Bible says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die, Ezekiel 18. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. We get that. I'm going to stand before my maker alone, and I will give an account for the things that I have done in my life. So will you, so will our children, so will everyone that's of accountable age and an accountable mind. Everybody will do that. But if I raise a family and my children are not faithful children, does it not bring up by way of my influence? Does it not bring up at least some questions? Am I at fault? Did I show my children what was important? Did I take my children and put the church above everything else? Did I do that? Do I have experience in raising others in the faith? Do I have experience in inspiring others to follow my example? Have I done those things? Lingering questions. Faithful children, folks, simply means what it is. It is faithful Christians. Now, back to Titus chapter 1 and verse 6. Because connected to faithful children, there's something else that's connected. On the opposite side, watch this. Not accused of riot or unruly in the King James. Not accused of riot or unruly. The New King James says dissipation or insubordination. Now the question is, what does that mean? You know, I read some scholars. Vincent said this. Watch this. You know what Vincent said that this means? To be not accused of riot or unruly. What's it mean to be accused of riot or unruly? It means you are manifesting unsavingness. Unsavingness to coin a word. That's what he said. It's about being unsaving qualities. That's the opposite of a faithful Christian. In other words, the child of an elder must bear in himself the qualities demanded in the father. He cannot be accused of riot or to be unruly. The NIV says it this way. He cannot be wild or disobedient. It's a word that is used to signify a wild and disorderly lifestyle. And incidentally, in Luke chapter 15 and verse 13... You remember what Jesus said about the prodigal? He goes out into the world, he takes his inheritance, and he wasted his substance on what? Riotous living. It's the same thing. An elder can't have kids, folks, that are guilty of unsavingness or a wild, riotous lifestyle. You know, this word is also used, the word riot, it's the Greek word asotia, by the way, but it's found also in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. In the New King James, it says this, and do not be drunk with wine, which is, in, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the New King James. The American Standard Version, it's the same Greek word as right there. The American Standard Version renders it like this, and do not be drunk with wine, which is riot. 
So in other words, Paul in that passage is putting this word or attributing or putting this next to the idea of drunkenness. Are we getting the picture of the lifestyle we are describing? An elder's children must not be accused of riot or unruly, which means guilty of unsaving qualities. And that's the opposite of being a faithful Christian. Now, now, such a lifestyle brings criticism to the child's father. An elder cannot serve effectively if his children are out of control. He is to rule his own house well. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, watch this. For a man does not know how to rule his own house. If he doesn't know, how will he take care of the church of God? Now watch this. Here's some conditions. If there's a man out there that is blameless, if he is a one-woman man, the husband of one wife, if he has faithful children, which are faithful Christians, those that are not what? They're not accused of riot or unruly or unsavingness. And if you got one, a guy like that, he's also going to be someone that rules or leads his own house well. And when he does that, he proves that he can also lead the church of God. All right. Here's a big question. Oh, it's a big question. If a child leaves, leaves the house and the child no longer lives under the roof of that parent, do the rules still apply? What if he becomes unfaithful away from home? I've heard people say it's just not fair. Yeah, it might not be fair. It's the way it is. I've heard people say it's just not fair. I mean, after all, their child is 35 years old and they live and they're married and they live on their own and all of that. And he decides to quit the church. It's not fair. Should the elder actually be responsible for that or have the effects of that? It's not a matter of being unfair. But let me just say it this way. I have two children. My daughter is going to be 21 and my son just turned 18. Everybody understands they are my children. Do we still have the same child-parent uh, relationship? Yes, they are still my children. What about when they're 30 and 40 and 50 years old if I'm still living? Are they my children? Yes, they are. They never stop being my children. Paul says that you have to have faithful children. What if one of my kids, though, what if I had four kids? And what if three of them are faithful and one is unfaithful? What if that's the case? If somebody asks me, well, are your kids faithful? What's my answer? Paul said you've got to have faithful children. I'm not going to say yes. I'm going to say, well, three of them are, but very sadly, one of them isn't. That's what I would say. Because that's the truth. Are we seeing the point? Now, what about the influence or what about things that reflect back on a father? How long should there be that? How long does a child still have ramifications of their choices reflecting back on the influence of the father? How long? Okay, two, two examples in the Old Testament come to mind. One is Eli and the other is Samuel. 
They had children that obviously the context shows they had sons that were not, I believe, under their roof. And yet their behavior, their behavior was a reflection back on their father's influence. Let me ask you something, folks. We're not guilty of the sin that our children commit. But we will always have that as a reflection back on us and our good name when they make bad choices. Just like we have people that pat us on the back when they make good choices. And I'm going to tell you. Yeah, I, yeah we, we feel good when somebody pats us on the back. And we, you know, our kids are doing well and they're doing right. And they, boy, you've done a great job. And yeah, thanks and all that. Okay, the flip side of that is... The flip side of that is they bring shame and reproach on their father and their mother when they go make terrible choices. Absolutely. When a child goes away from home, he's still a child. And by the way, this relationship between child and father, it continues through life. In fact, children are to honor their parents. Did you know that a child is to honor his parents for his lifetime? Not just while they live under the roof. They are to honor their father and mother for the duration of their life. And by the way, the greatest way to honor your parents is stay faithful. That's the greatest way you can honor your father and mother is to stay faithful. Have you ever stopped to consider all the people in here that are old enough, old enough to be a Christian and you have parents that are still living? Have you ever stopped to consider that the choices that you make in your life are affecting whether or not your father can be an elder in the body of Christ in the Lord's church? You know what I say to the young man or young woman that has a godly father, a spiritually minded father that is desiring the office of an elder, that wants to be an elder in the body of Christ in the Lord's church? That fits the qualifications in every other way. But you have decided, the young person has decided, I'm going to go about my business. I'm going to quit the church. You know what I'm going to say about that? The only thing that comes to make my mind is shame on you. Shame on you. We have confidence in children that are faithful. We have confidence in children that are faithful. In Proverbs 25 and 19, listen to this. Confidence in an unfaithful man, though... In time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. Boy, that's some good stuff. We don't have confidence in people that are not faithful. Children bear responsibilities toward their parents. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 4, listen to this. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first show, learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. So, does an unfaithful child disqualify an elder? Yes. Yes. May not be fair, folks, but it's right. Can that man be a Christian? Yes. Can that man go to heaven? Yes. Can that man be a teacher in the local congregation? Yes. Can that man be an evangelist and preach the gospel all over the world? Yes. But if he does not have faithful children, he can't be an elder in the Lord's church. Simple as that. Simple as that. 
The only way that an elder can serve free from distracting questions pertaining to a man's qualifications to be an elder is if he continues to have faithful children. Okay, here's a big question. Here's a big question. I did not come to the conclusion that I have today without much study, reflection, and prayer. But here's a big question. If a man only has one child, does having one child disqualify him from being qualified to be an elder? Does it disqualify him? Well, let me just say this. I will say that a man that has a plurality or multiple children in their home, and he raises a plurality of children, and he has a plurality of children that are Christians and are faithful, that man really has demonstrated greater that he can deal with multiple personalities in the church because he has dealt with multiple personalities in his own home. So, do I think it is better for a man to have a plurality of children? Yes. The question isn't that. The question is, if a man only has one child, is he disqualified? All right. Let's answer it like this. Let's find out. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 6 again, it says having faithful children. Now, the word children is the word tikna. Now, tikna is the plural form of the noun for child, which is tiknon. Now, in this passage, it says tikna. It is the plural form of the noun for child, which is translated in the English language as children. And it is obviously plural. The question is, what does it mean, what does children mean in a plural sense in this passage? Does it mean the number of children that they have? Well, let's look. The word tikna is actually translated, is actually defined as the word offspring. So Titus chapter 1 and verse 6, by definition, would be having faithful offspring. Okay, let's go further. What does plural mean here? Plural means, plurality here, means plurality of class. What does that mean? It means the plural containing the singular. That's what that means. The plural containing the singular and not necessarily the plurality of children or more than one. Okay? I didn't go off the reservation. Stay with me. Let's look at some Bible examples that prove exactly what I'm talking about. Same exact word. In Luke chapter 29 and verse 28, watch this. Saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, singular, and he dies without children, tikna, plural containing the singular, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Same exact word. Let's go further, though. Let's look at another one. How about this? This is one that we know about. This is the perfect example of the singular contained in the plural word. It's talking about words that Sarah said in Genesis chapter 21 and verse 7. Watch this. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, tikna, plural containing the singular? Then what did she do? For I have borne him a son, singular, in his old age. Let's talk about another one. How about this? 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 4. 
But if a woman has children, tikna, the plural containing the singular, or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now, in this passage, the word children is used without regard to a specific number. If a widow had only one child, the use of the word children would in no way have relieved that person of their responsibilities. Here's another one, and this really hits home to us fathers. Watch this. Ephesians 6 and 4, and you fathers, do not provoke your children, plural containing the singular, take not, same word, to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, folks, that is a requirement of fathers, whether you have one child or ten children. Whether you have one child or whether you have ten children. Now, here's another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children, tikna, plural containing the singular, would be unclean, but now they are holy. So what's my point? Folks, listen. I do think, I do believe that it is better for a man to have and demonstrate that he can raise multiple children in the house. That he can raise them in the training and admonition of the Lord. That they can all be faithful members of the body of Christ. That he can have the kind of reputation that shows that his influence is more important than his authority. And he has demonstrated in his life that he can deal with multiple personalities and they can be children of God. As I think that that is better than a man that has one child, for example, in demonstrating that. A man that has one child does not disqualify him for being an elder. Because in that passage, the word tikna there, tikna, is the word children, which is plural, containing the singular. And Paul's entire point is this. He wasn't saying how large your family is. He was talking about what the status of your family is. He was talking about the status of your offspring. Are they faithful or are they not? Plural containing the singular. That's exactly what he meant in Titus 1 and 6. That's exactly what tikna means. Now, it's the kind of family that a, that a man has. And so, what is a man to be in closing? He's to be a one-woman man. He is to be the husband of one wife. He is to have faithful children. He would be a man that rules well his own house. He will be a man that has his children in subjection. He will be a man that has the desire for the office and more so even the desire for the work. He will be blameless and there will be no sustainable charges against him. He will be the husband of one wife. And as uh, McGarvey said, if he can't have more than one, then he can't have less than one. A married man. He must be one that has faithful children. And that means that they are all Christians. I'm going to tell you, there's some hard qualifications, folks. And I'll tell you, faithful children probably disqualifies the majority of men in the Lord's church today. But folks, if we don't take a literal 
interpretation of the requirements, then we can just add any kind of loose position we want. We can explain it all away, and we can say that the requirements don't even matter, the qualifications don't even matter. We can throw them right out the door, and we can add in whatever we want to add in. We don't interpret anything else in the Word of God doctrinally that way, and we can't do it regarding an elder. Listen, folks, we are teaching on the subject so that we have, at some point in time, at some point, Spiritually minded men that desire the office of an elder and are fully qualified to be so. These four we've already talked about. Next time, two weeks from today, the fourth Sunday morning, my next turn to preach, we're going to talk about the elder's demeanor and the elder's behavior. Now, let me just add one final thing in closing here. One final thing. Except for being the husband of one wife, Aren't all of these requirements and qualifications great things for a Christian to aspire to have in their life? Absolutely. A Christian needs to be mindful of these things. He needs to be blameless. These are great qualities for the child of God. So a sister that might be watching and studying with us on these, sub on these subject matters can also apply the things that would apply in her life and be better in her life too. And one final thing, if men strove to do that and aspire to be an elder one day and never made it, let's say they never made it, don't you think they'd be better for the cause of Christ than they ever could have been? They would. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.